right, let's do this. We're starting a new series today. Whatever happened to the power of God? This is something the Lord's been putting on my heart the last couple of months, ironically, and Janet didn't know this. Uh, in fact, nobody really did. I don't, I don't usually foretell the series that I've got coming up, the things that God are uh, working on me with, but, but Janet's been asking this very question for the last several months, as we all have, because we live in a world today that it seems as if, if God is there, where did he go? Because I think we can all agree our, our world is in a mess right now. When you have the state of New York as an example, passing the ability to kill a baby up until birth, and if it happens to survive that birth, we'll decide at that moment what we're going to do. I don't know about y'all, but I don't feel like that's the will of God. Where's he at? Here we have a God that we claim is all-knowing and all-powerful, and yet we have people that are sick, that are dying, that we've got tragedies happening all the world, all over the world. What happened to the power of God? Because the God that we read about in the Bible and the God that we seem to be experiencing at this very moment, in this very hour, do not match. We're just talking about Moses in that video as an example. Here you've got a people. Here's Moses, supernaturally saved from birth. Floats down a river. Some chick picks him up. Hey, he gets put into the palace. He learns all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Takes off, goes and beats with his people. And there's God speaking in the burning bush. Has that ever happened to you? Me neither. Pretty powerful, I would say. The bush was not consumed. I'll tell you a funny story. This is a side note. This is free. I'm not charging you all for this part here, okay? Is when you go to Israel, I have never been. You have been. I know some others have been in here. But when you go to Israel, don't trust everything that they tell you there. Because the bus drivers, as an example, they get tips. And the cooler the experience for you, the more likely you are to tip them. So the bus driver's pulling up, bus full of people, they pull up, and there had been a fire that had gone through the area. It was very dry that year, and they look, and there was a bush that was all burned up. And everybody's looking, it's like, what's that over there? And being a smart bus driver, what do you think he said? Oh, that was the burning bush in which, so what did the, uh, the people do? They start. And we're back. There we go. Batteries are wonderful. But, but, but you think about that. So you've got the burning bush. You've got the supernatural. You've got the ten plagues that happen. Moses shows up, throws his thing on the ground, turns into a snake. That ever happened to you? Yeah, me neither. There's so much that you read about. They, they flee Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. What magically happens? The sea parts. They run through it. How do you do that? supernatural power of God they got manna from heaven you've got axe heads floating you've got donkeys uh, talking you've got all these supernatural things going on the power of God was alive and well then you get off into the New Testament and here you've got the power of God encompassed in a man named Jesus the son of God healing the sick casting out demons doing all of the supernatural stuff then he dies on the cross and everybody's sad and then three days later oh hey I'm back that ever happened to you yeah, me neither. I don't know too many people that have come back from the dead. 
I give Gabe's dad a hard time, and in fact, I was just giving Gabe a hard time the other day. I'm like, could you imagine, you know, you're walking there, the body's in the casket, and you're walking through the room, he's like, hey, uh, can you help me out of this? Like, that would be weird, but I picture that with Lazarus. Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he's got his grave clothes on, it's like, hey, cut those off of him, you know? It's pretty supernatural, extremely powerful. We claim to have this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, but where did he go? What happened to him? Because what we experience today in this moment is not the same that we read about in the Bible. Could we all at least agree with that part? That we do not see it in the way that we, at least we read about. Does that mean that God changed? Well, he can't change because His Word says that He can't change. His character is His character. It's like God can never have an idea. He never had a moment. He's like, you know what I didn't think of? It's... it's one of those things, there's like, what happened to the power of God? Do you realize that, and you may not know this, but we've seen the power of God move in this country. In, in, in a very supernatural way. You ever heard of the Great Awakening? I mean, incredible move of God. They were seeing signs, wonders, and miracles. You may not even realize that, because when you read about it in the history books, they actually teach us stuff in school, at least they used to, about the Great Awakening and how it was a catalyst to becoming the United States and being a free nation the way that we are. But, but they were talking about that people who would just be there worshiping God and fall down under the power of God, crying out to God in repentance. Miracles happening, people being healed. That's the part they leave out of the textbooks. But, but the bottom line is, is you had a people that were just desiring God. You see that throughout the entire history of the world. It's not a new phenomenon. In fact, we've seen it in this country multiple times through the years, as recent as the late 90s, the mid to late 90s. There was a move of God in this country that was birthed out of a place down in Florida where millions of people flocked to this place to see the power of God and to experience, and people crying out to God and repentance. And yeah, there was weird stuff that happened. But do you remember the stuff I just described? Floating axe heads, talking donkeys, Snakes from staffs, that's weird too. But what happened to that? The other thing that you may not know is the very church that you sit in, that you're attending today, was birthed out of a supernatural move of God. This wasn't a group of people who says, you know what, we need another church in this town. These are a group of people who's like, you know what, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be. We're going to look at this. All of this. We're going to look at it. Because... God went somewhere, surely, but where did he go? You see, to, to understand this, we've got to go to the Word. We always have to go to the Word. We've got to start there. We're going to look at a couple of things. You know, there's, there's, there's a couple of different issues that we have in the church. When I say the church, I mean big C, the body of Christ, or at least that we claim to be. Do you realize that every church is not a part of the body of Christ? Because you can call yourself a church. There's a satanic church. They would not call themselves the body of Christ. There's a church of atheists. I don't understand that one. But they get together. They sing hymns that have no God in it. I don't understand. Anyway. But the bottom line is this. Is that if God is real and He is who He says He is, then where did He go? The founding fathers in the United States, majority Christian Bible-believing men and some back then claimed that they were deists and what a deist is is somebody that believes that God created everything he put all the laws and order in place and all of that and then he kind of just stepped back and he's like all right y'all figure it out on your own some of us do that with our kids 
right? They're sitting there arguing something like, I'm going to let them just figure this out on their own. And what does that lead to? Broken stuff and bloody noses. Doesn't usually end well. Do, do, do kids work it out on their own? Sometimes, but that's a miracle. That's the power of God, y'all. Where did it go? There's a couple of issues that have happened here in the last, I'm going to say 25 years. And it's more than this. It goes back deeper than this. But I can tell you about the last 25 years because I've experienced it. And I can tell you what I've watched happen. We've got a trifold of issues. You've got one. You've got an issue of a church that has a form of godliness but denies its power. And we're going to look at that today. The other issue that you've got, another issue that you've got, is you've got a form of church that also talks about the power of God, but has no foundation that it is rooted in. They talk about these experiences and how they saw God do this and all of this other stuff, but yet when you question their belief system in any way, they have no foundation in which they build. What I'm talking about is the Word. They're extremely spiritual, but they're not grounded in anything. It's just based off of experience. Can your experience be wrong? Sure it can. Can what's your takeaway be wrong? You ask a Mormon, how do you know that Mormonism is true? You know what their answer will be? The Holy Spirit revealed it to me in the burning in the bosom. They have a feeling. Do you know what's sad? Is many Christians would say the same thing. How do you know Christianity is true? Your experience is irrelevant because it's true regardless of what you feel about it. It's either true or it's not. can't be true and not true at the same time. That's called a fallacy. But... We've got that aspect, we've got all of these different things, and we're going to look at this. We're going to start today in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start there. Because we've got a number of issues that are going on in the church. We'll talk about these. But we're going to start here. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Are we in the last days? Of course we are. Because the day before, if it was a last day... Well, we're really in the last day, right? And to understand this, we talked about this Wednesday night as we're teaching through the book of Hebrews, good for you to be there, is that the last days is a messianic term. It's the time of the Messiah. In a Jewish world, it was the time of the Messiah. That when the Messiah comes, they are the last days because they thought in the moment, remember, they were expecting Jesus to set up his earthly reign right then and there. And what we know is that we don't have two Messiahs that were coming. That's what they were thinking. They thought two different messiahs. You've got the, the sacrificial lamb, and then you've got the reigning king. But what we have is one messiah coming twice. He came as the sacrificial lamb, will come and set up his throne on the earth again. So in the last days, perilous times will come. So here we've got Paul warning Timothy. Listen, this is going to happen. Be prepared. And then he's going to tell us why they're going to come. For men, that includes women, will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, they're boasters, they're proud, they're blasphemers, they're disobedient to parents, they're unthankful, they're unholy, they're unloving, they're unforgiving, they're slanders, they're without self-control, brutal, they're despisers of good, they're traitors, they're headstrong, they're haughty, they're lovers of pleasures rather than the lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Does that sound like the world we live in today? Do we have people that are lovers of themselves and lovers of money? We just spent 20 weeks talking about Godonomics, and the main takeaway from that is God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. If He gets your heart, your money will follow. Do we have people that are boasters, that they're proud, that they blaspheme? Absolutely. Are kids disobedient to parents? Yup. Are adult kids disobedient to their parents? Yup. 
You don't believe me? Come to my house. I'll prove it to you. They're unthankful. Oh my goodness. If you woke up today, you have something to be thankful for. They're unholy. They're unloving. They're unforgiving. All of these. The only un you should be is understanding. Slanders without self-control. We live in a generation that all they want is what feels good, what's fun. I want to I feed myself. I want what's happy. Do you realize that in, in the abortion debate, I just watched this the other day, in the abortion debate, the, you bring up the idea of abstinence and it's not even possible. It's not even an option because they have no self-control. They want what feels good. They're brutal. They're despisers of the good. They're traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I'd rather have what I want than have what God would give me. But the last one is what gets me. Having a form of godliness but denying His power. Denying what power? The power of God. That's the, the power that's being denied. And he tells them, you need to turn away from these people, which tells you what? These people are in his church. This isn't just people that are unbelievers and are out there in the world. Why would we expect that? We, I mean, Paul even talks about that. And essentially says, listen, ducks quack and dogs bark. So don't put the standards on an unbeliever that you would a believer. But when Paul is writing here to Timothy, he's saying, listen, all of these people are out there and you need to stay away from these types of people. I'm not talking about an individual that makes a mistake or sins. I'm talking about a person who lives in perpetual sin. Unrepentant. Why are they? Because they have a form of godliness. They're doing the right things in the eyes of the people. But they deny its power. Stay away from these people. Verse 6. For of this sort are those who creep into households. Now watch this. And they make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now let's stop for a moment. This is not a knock on women, okay? Please understand that. But who was the first person that was deceived? Eve. Was Adam deceived? No. He chose to follow his wife. He willingly, he knew what the consequences were. He could have said, no, 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 she's on her own. God, let's listen, let's do, let's do, I got more ribs. You can take as many as you need. Go give me a new one. But what happens? These people who have a form of godliness but deny its power, they creep into households. And they make captives of, let's just say, gullible people. And they're loaded down with sins and they're led away by various lusts, but they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now as Janus and Jambres, I don't know if I'm saying those right, resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was, referring to Janus and Jambres. And go back and read that sometime to get an understanding. Here's the thing. There is a form of godliness out there. And in fact, this time of year, you're seeing it come to fruition. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Lent. Right? What happens in Lent? It's a time where people who aren't a part of church on a regular basis will come back to the church for starting with Ash Wednesday. And the, the reason behind Lent is you come on Ash Wednesday and they burn the ashes and they put them on your, your forehead in the shape of the cross. And it's a time, it's 40 days, that you are to fast and repent before the Lord heading up to Easter, not counting Sundays. And so people come out of the work, woodwork two times a year. Right? Christmas and Easter. 
We call them Christians. Never mind. All right. But they come out and they do this because it's like, oh, well, we got to go because it's Lent. Now, they may not go to church the rest of the year, but they'll be there for Easter. They'll be there for the start of Lent, likely. And then what do you hear? You see people all the time. Even people that really wouldn't be followers of Christ, but they, they have a form of godliness of some sort. They say, I'm giving up this for Lent. I'm giving up that for Lent. Do you guys realize fasting has always and will always be food? It is the abstinence from food. It is nothing else. You cannot fast Facebook because the definition in the Bible from fasting is from food. All right. Now, should we be on Facebook all day long? Absolutely not. The best thing you could do is get away from it half the time. But it's this time that comes in. But here's the thing. Here we've got a form of godliness. The idea of fasting and repentance are both very good things. But we never question, where do we get this idea from? What are the origins of this? And why do we do it? I mean, we, we should ask these questions. Why do we do the things that we do? One example I give all the time. Why do we lift our hands in worship? The most popular answer is, we're lifting up our hands and surrender to God. Okay, how many of y'all thought about that? Nobody. Some dude wrote a book and that's what he said. And there's an element of truth there. We are laying our lives down, but ultimately it actually goes back to the high priest on the Day of Atonement because he would go in there, and, and other priests would do this too at different times of year, but on that altar of incense, it would gather this because remember, this is like prayers. This is the filling of the, uh, the, the holy place. And he would gather it in his hand and then he would lift them up and he'd watch it spread and it would fill the room. Filling the room with the presence of God. That's, that's really the origins of that idea. Now, how many of you all knew that? That's right. One. Oh, I said it before? Ah, darn it. See, she paid attention. You get a gold star. But, but, but the thing is, is we never asked her, so where do we get these ideas of Lent? Do you realize that the concept didn't come about to the 4th century? They'll claim it goes back further, but there's no evidence of that. It goes back to the 4th century at the time of Constantine. Constantine becomes a Christian, and there's arguments whether he was truly a believer or not a believer. I don't know. I wasn't there. But he claims to have had a vision of God saw a cross in the sky, and he gave his life to Christ. And let's just, for the sake of argument, assume that that is true. All right? Because just because you give your life to Christ does not necessarily make you a good person or make wise decisions. Fair enough? All right, so for the sake of argument today, he was a Christian who gives his life to Christ. And he's got, he makes Christianity, now the overarching, this is the religion of the people, and he had a bunch of pagan religions around him, one of which was the worship of the sun god, worshiping the sun. And so he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring all of these people in together, and we're going to Christianize their worship so that we can be united together in faith. Does that work? No. It doesn't. Because it's not necessarily the what that you're doing. It is always the why. Why am I doing it? So if you take pagan rituals and you go and put them in a church setting, does that make them godly? No. But do people who are, are doing something that they, you know, they truly are worshiping God from their heart, regardless of its origins? Absolutely. I mean, within reason, if you're sacrificing chickens, okay, we might have an issue there. But if you fry them at the end of it, we have a potluck. So we're good. I'm glad you guys have see. It, 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 we'll get jokes here, Janet. We'll get it down here. But, but the thing is, is that this actually has its origins all the way back to the time of Nimrod. Because Nimrod, who was the Tower of Babel guy, he's going to build this great tower, he's married to a gal named Semiramis. She was known as the Queen of Heaven. And they had a son named Tammuz. 
And if you remember Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter, and Tammuz was just like him. And at 40 years old, he went out hunting. He was killed by a wild boar. And so what they did is they cut up the body and they sent it off to all these different places and stuff like that. But Semiramis created a time of worship. Because he was 40 years old, they would worship him for 40 days, praying for his resurrection that he would come back. This sound familiar at all? You can actually see this in the Bible. I didn't put this in my notes, but we talked about it this morning. And so it's, it's good enough for them. It's good enough for y'all. You could just be here early in the morning and go to Bible study with us, but that's all right. In Ezekiel 8, chapter 14, you have Ezekiel is having a vision of the temple that God's giving him this. And it says, uh, verse 14, so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, which is the temple, the north end. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And they would be in sackcloth and ashes, crying and worshiping Semiramis and praying that Tammuz would come back from the dead every year. This went into the 4th century. Today we call it Lent. Now please do not misunderstand me. Most people, in fact all people pretty much, have no clue and this is a time of true worship for them. And that's great. I'm not downgrading that. What I'm saying is, is why do we do this? And at what purpose of it? Because we have a form of godliness, but we have denied His power. You see, we have a religious system in place today. Did Jesus come on the earth to set up a religious system? No, it already existed, as you're going to see here in a moment. It existed from the time that He set everything up with Moses and all of that. They had a way in which they had to come to God. A system of rules, if you will. But Jesus came not to eliminate that, but to fulfill it. That in Him, the temple is no longer one made with hands, but is one made by God. That you and I are it, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, in that, the worship now no longer requires you to go someplace because the presence of God is with you at all times. So things changed. And we watch this progression here. But in our churches today, we do these things and never ask, why are we doing this? How is this worshipful to God? Is my heart repentant? And you know that it's not because you watch people. Should there be fruit of repentance? Right? You don't have to do something to get right with God. It's the fact that you're right with God that changes the things that you do. We should see something. And yet, we see people every year go in and out. It happens here. It happens everywhere. It's happened at every church I've ever been a part of. They'll come around about the holy times a year. They'll put in their service, and then they're gone for a while. Because there's something about it. We have a form of godliness, but denies power. We have a church that will talk about all the miracles in the Bible and say, but that doesn't happen today. Can't. Those did away with. That's a different God than the God of the Bible. The one who said, I'm the same today and yesterday, and I'm, I'm the same forever. It doesn't make sense. We have a form of godliness, but denying His power. Now let's look at this, okay? In John chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1. We've got a misunderstood piece of text here that happens all the time. I hear it misquoted all the time. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters in the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls to his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Hey, how many of y'all understood the things he just spoke to them? You should get it, right? Who are sheep? You and I. We are. So the bottom line is, is that there's a way in, and if you don't take the door, because the only way that doorkeeper is going to open that door is if he knows who you are. 
and the sheep hear the voice and they come. Have you ever seen that? You should go, go get on YouTube sometime and watch when it's time to feed the sheep and the shepherd will go out there and just yell and you'll see him flocking. It's, it's crazy to look at. We don't do a lot of that around here. We don't have a lot of sheep farms. But it's crazy to watch. So he's giving this illustration. There's one way in, through the door. If you try any other way, you're a robber. Verse 7, then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So now he's breaking this down. All whoever came before me, they are thieves and robbers. This is not a good time to be called that. I don't know what good time that would be. The sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now watch. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So we see an antithesis of thought. You've got the thief. And you've got Jesus. The thief comes for three reasons. He's going to kill, he's going to steal, and he will destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to give you life. Not just life, but abundant life. Alright? Now, question. Who's the thief? Now, you ask anybody and they're going to say, well, that's the devil. Is that the correct answer? And you know it's not, because I wouldn't be setting this up like I am if it was. It is not the devil. It's not. But to catch this, to understand this, and how this applies to the having a form of godliness but denying its power, we've got to go back and we've got to read a little bit. Now, we're going to start in chapter 7. And we're going to read back to where we just were. But I need you to stay with me here. And I need you to understand, I'm going to explain this along the way. I realize this is a lot of text to go through today. But I want you to catch everything in context. And truthfully, you really need to even go back even further to catch the full context of it. Never read a Bible verse. Ever. Read 20 before, 20 after. That'll get you pretty close. But when you read a Bible verse, you get the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the devil. We've got to read around us. Let's start. Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now, let's stop there for a minute. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? And who did it belong to? It was the Jews. Feast of Tabernacles is a time where uh, it was, it's called Sukkot, where they would build these booths outside. You see it when, when uh, Jesus is praying in the Transfiguration. they got Moses and Elijah with them. He says, let us, let us build two tents. I think it says tents or huts or something. It says something like that. One for you, one for them. That's a Sukkot, that these, they're with him. And so, in the Feast of, of, of Tabernacles, they would come. It was a time, it was one of the times where all able-bodied male Jews had to come back to Jerusalem. They'd build these things out in the streets because they would sleep under the stars and went back to a time when they were wandering in the wilderness and they had no, no permanent residence. They didn't have a home, they had tents or however, whatever they lived in. So they built these things out of sticks. You could see the starlights through them. That was all part of it. It's a big thing. We taught on this in depth uh, probably a year ago. It is online if you want to go back and get into all the details. The bottom line is, this here is a marker of the time of which we're talking about in John chapter 10. We need to pay attention to that because it's giving us a clue. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, and that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself, for he uh, seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. You see, Jesus had brothers, and they didn't like him. Would you like him? Hey, guys, I'm the Son of God. Why don't you guys worship me? 
Can you imagine that going over well with your siblings? Look at Joseph. Joseph gets this dream, and he goes to his brothers and says, Guess what, guys? I'm going to rule the world. And they're like, yeah, we'll fix that. We'll sell you. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you. It hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. What is it talking about here, the world? Well, see, we think about this as the sin, and you got the world and the things of God. But at this point, everything was the world. There was the things of God were just the outward expressions here. The world hates me because I testified that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Now this is a big no-no, because Jesus was an able-bodied male Jew. He had to go up to Jerusalem, had to. Verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there is such complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Who are these Jews? Is it just all the Jews? Obviously not, because some are like, yeah, he's a good guy. And others are like, no, 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 he's not. But ultimately, who are the Jews in question here? The religious leaders. These are the Jews they're, they're afraid of. And you'll see why here shortly. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and taught. Seven days long. We saw the beginning when they went. Now, it's the middle of the feast. You guys with me? So we're day three and a half-ish. All right? He went to the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, these people know him, but the bottom line here is that when you knew the Torah, you were taught it by somebody. Who was Jesus the disciple of? Nobody on this earth. They didn't know who he was and how on earth he could know this stuff. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether it is I speak on my own authority. Stop. You notice he says doctrine. You know, that's a term we use today. What is doctrine? It's a series of beliefs. Now, how did he tell them they would know? If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Does this go back to what I was talking about a little bit? That how do we know if a doctrine is from God? It's in the scriptures. Or I speak from my own authority. We can test it, right? Test all things. Acts 17, 11, where the Bereans took everything that Paul said with all gladness of heart, but then they searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were true. They didn't just swallow it blindly, they tested it. So here we've got it again. They shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Why? They can go back to the Scriptures that he's teaching from and look, as can we. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Wait a minute, who gave him the law? Moses did. Here's an example of Jesus talking about who gave this to you. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel." Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. 
If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a, complete, made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, stop there. What's it talking about? Remember, underneath the law that when a baby was born on the eighth day, they were required to circumcise him. That was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Without it, you were not under it. It had to happen. That is why they were wandering in the wilderness and they're getting ready to cross over and cross the Jordan to go with Joshua into the promised land. They stopped and circumcised the males that were born there because they had to do that underneath the, uh, um, the, what's the word I'm thinking of? The covenant, thank you. The covenant that they were there. Okay, so he's saying, if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath, which law do you break, guys? Do you break the Sabbath commandment or do you break the commandment of Moses? Here we go. From now on, or now some of them took from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They're talking about the Pharisees here. Because remember, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but the Messiah had miracles that they were expecting that he would do. And so because they're not openly coming and trying to gather him away, they're saying, wait, do they know that he's the Christ? Maybe he is because he speaks so boldly. However, we know that where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. That's not a true statement. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom he, you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's the title, the anointed one, the Messiah. When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? What signs are we talking about? These miracles that the Messiah will do. Is he possibly going to do more? If this isn't him, can this guy do more? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now, why is the Pharisees a big deal? And why are they always around Jesus? Remember that any time a messianic miracle was performed, they would go to the Pharisees. The Pharisees would investigate it. The Pharisees would declare who was the Messiah. It was a system of worship. They were the leaders of religion and the leaders of government at this point in time in Jerusalem. So the people followed them. Jesus said to them, I'll be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37, now watch this. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit from whom those give, believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, there, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, he shows up, he's in the temple, it's the last day of the feast, seven days, day seven. And he says, I am the living water. He who believes in me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Okay? We hear that term thrown around all the time. Great, that sounds good. Watch the reaction, verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ come from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, here's the thing. 
the statement he makes, I am the living water, and he who believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, is the thing that made them say, this is the prophet. This is the Christ. And they're questioning, like, wait a minute. And then they're arguing. And what do they argue from? The basis of Scripture. This man's from Galilee. But the Messiah is going to come from the seed of David, from Bethlehem, which we all know that Jesus was. What is going on here, and why was this such a profound moment? So you have to understand this feast. And one of the things that happened on the last day, which is known as the great day of feast, the last and great day of the feast, is that the high priest would leave the temple, and he would go down, and there was this procession, and he would go down to the pool, and you have two pitchers, and they would take two pitchers of living water. What is living water? It's water that is moving. It's either a river, a spring, or from rain. If you have stagnant water and one drop of rain hits it, it is now considered living water. And what he would do, he would go back up to that altar, and he would pour that water on the altar and say, this is the living water. And it was an thing waiting for the presence of God to come back to the temple you follow me so far so what did Jesus just claim I am the living water he's doing it on the same moment that that priest is pouring that out and that is why they were so shocked like this is the prophet this is this is the Christ I am the living water. The presence of God is now in the temple, just as was foretold. In Ezekiel, you watch the presence of God leave, go to the Mount of Olives and raise up. And again, we've got it coming back down here, and he's in the temple. Where's he going to return? He's going to put his foot on the Mount of Olives. They're waiting on the presence of God, and it's there. You guys follow me so far? You guys get that? It's so key. You have to understand that. He, in that moment, claimed, I am the Messiah. Verse 45, watch the reaction to the, to the Pharisees. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees said, Why have you not brought him? And the officer said, answer, No man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered him, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Have we told you he's the Messiah? If we didn't tell you that that is the Son of God, then he's not the Son of God. I don't care what he claimed. I don't care what he says. I don't care what he does. You were to go and get him. Now Nicodemus, in verse 50, he's the one who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, one of the Pharisees. And This is in John chapter 3. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? He's trying, because remember, Nicodemus believes in him. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house, though they adjourned for the day. Nothing good comes from Galilee. Remember in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit falls on these people, and, and they think they're drunk, and they're hearing all these languages and all this stuff, and they're like, it can't be those guys. They're Galileans. Those are the country bumpkins. They don't know nothing. They live off in the trailer park. I mean, that's literally what it is. You see, Jesus had been performing miracles up to this point and is continuing to do so. The four Messianic miracles are this. The first one is they had the Messiah, and only the Messiah could do this, would heal a leper. Because they believed that leprosy was from God, and it was given as a punishment for sin. So only the Messiah can take away sin. That was number one. Number two is that he would cast out a deaf and a dumb spirit. Because there was exorcism that took place in the Jewish world at that time. But in order to do it, they would have to get the name of the demon in order to cast it out. And if that demon makes it where the man can neither speak nor hear, you can't get the name. Therefore, you can't exorcise it. Only the Messiah can do that. And that also happens. We see that 
happen as well. A third thing is the healing of somebody born with a birth defect. You're about to watch that one happen. They're born from birth. That means they have sin in their life, and only they can, uh, only the Messiah can fix that. Nobody can heal. The last one is raising somebody from the dead after three days, so on the fourth day, because they believe that the spirit of a man or anybody stayed with the body up till day three, but at day three, the spirit would depart. So if somebody raised somebody from the dead on the fourth day, that is one of the signs that only God can do. And who did Jesus do that with? It was the Messiah. Go back and read that. It's very specific. It says, it is better for you that I stay, because the, the disciples are like, hey, we should go. This is Lazarus. Like, you love this dude. And, and he's like, no, it's better that you stay. And it says, on the fourth day, he went in. And they're like, he's been in there. For, he's he's, he's going to smell bad, you know. And Jesus said, no. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. You guys with me so far? You see, these are the things that the Pharisees are arguing about. People are like getting confused. Like he's making all of these claims. Chapter 8, verse 1. So we finished that feast. Now Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. So remember where he's at, back in the temple. And when they had sat in her midst and said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded as that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. So they've rejected everything at this point. They refuse to see it, so they're trying to catch him in breaking the law. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. Now, that'd be a little annoying, right? You're talking to somebody, and like, hey, give me an answer. He stoops down, and he writes in the dirt. So when they continued to ask him, he raised himself up and said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her, at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I. I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, this passage has gotten very popular in our culture because you know only God can judge you. So therefore, you shouldn't come against anything that I'm doing because only God can judge me. And if you're truly living your life for Christ, you ought to be telling them because God is going to judge them and that should freak them out. But they hear this like, uh, uh, you who is without sin cast the first stone. That's a very popular statement. They leave the part out where he says, yeah, I don't accuse you either. Why don't you stop sinning? Go and sin no more sounds very regal. But if it were me saying like, knock it off. But what is going on here? Because here you've got, they're trying to catch him. This is right after the claim, I am the Messiah, the whole I am the living water thing. This has just happened. And so they say, okay, we got this. Well, number one, there's a couple things that must happen. Where's the guy? Got the woman caught in adultery. I don't know if you know this or not, but you can't commit adultery by yourself. It takes two to tango. Where's the guy? So did this really happen or not? I don't know. They're claiming it is. You also had to have two witnesses. Don't see that. That goes back to the law. But they're trying to catch him. And in the moment, he stoops down on the ground, and he starts writing in the dirt. And everybody's always asked this question, well, what's he writing? And I've heard all sorts of different things. And we've talked about this a little bit here before, but just in case you weren't here. I even heard a pastor one time said that God revealed to him that God, Jesus was down there doodling. He was, he was drawing little kitty cats and little butterflies. And listen, I may not know much, but that wasn't it. Because when he stood up, he says, you without sin, cast the first stone. Is that very, like, 
Does that condemn you? They don't respect him. His words are nothing to these people. These are the Pharisees. They're trying everything they can to catch him. But after saying that, he stoops back down, he keeps writing, and something hits them, and they start dropping the stones, and they head out. What caused that? Well, again, we lost Scripture to interpret Scripture. We've got to look at passages and see what is going on here. You see, just the day before, in the temple where he is the presence of God, he claims, I am the living water. I am this Messiah. I wash you clean. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. You will have the Holy Spirit is what he's getting at. And then the next day they're coming and trying to catch him again. He's been doing these messianic miracles. All the, all the signs are there. They're refusing. It's not like they can't see it. They are refusing to see it. So what is he writing? It's what he's writing that impacted them. Because these are people trained in the law and the prophets. They taught it. They read it. They spent their entire life studying. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13, I want you to look at this. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. The fountain of living waters is a reference back to the Messiah. You have forsaken him and your name will be written in the earth. He was writing their names down. They recognized this. All who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me, they did. He, the day before, he said, I am the living waters. They've forsaken the Lord who is the fountain of living waters. I can tell you what he's writing because Jeremiah said, that's what they saw. That's what they heard. That's what they knew. And they dropped the rocks and they started walking away because there was conviction in their heart. Do you realize somebody can be convicted without repenting? Happens all the time. You guys with me? You see, this is why this is so powerful. This isn't just any arbitrary event that's going on. This is important. And we're still getting back to chapter 10. We're not there yet. Let's go to verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What on earth is he talking about? Why does he make this claim? Why does he make this claim? I am the light of the world. Again, one of those verses that we lift out of context, we're like, boy, that sounds good. He's the light of the world. Is he? Absolutely. But what is this talking about? Well, here's another thing, and I've got a picture, I think, of this. Can you put that up? This is inside the temple, and this is inside the women's court. And what you don't know is in these feasts, especially with the feast of Hanukkah is one that they do this in, but the feast of, of tabernacles as well, is they put up four of these very large menorahs here. That's just one. This is in the women's court. And they would fill those bowls. They'd have to climb. You can kind of see. It's hard to see in that picture. There's a ladder there. That thing is 70 feet tall. And they would have these lighting progressions that would come through. And they would have all these candles and these different things lit. But four of those things primarily because the light from the temple would shine all around the world. They say it doesn't matter where you are. You can see the light of the world right here where the place of God was. Those things are up there. Jesus is in the temple teaching. He brings that woman to them there, and he points at these things. He says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me should not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You guys, again, a very powerful statement. A very po- he's, he's claiming to be the Messiah. Do you guys realize that one of the arguments is that Jesus never claimed to be God? Yes, he did, when you understand the context. Let's look at verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And Jesus' answer said, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. 
But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am, the, I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so again, what is the argument here? Anytime something was brought, it had to have two witnesses. The Feast of Trumpets could not start until two witnesses saw the new moon, and then they would go to the Pharisees, and the trumpets would be blown. So it was always two witnesses, and he's saying, no, 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 nobody else here agrees with you. He's saying, yeah, the Father does. Verse 19, they said to him, where is your father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. They wanted to, they couldn't. Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you can't come. And the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Why is he, who is he talking to? The leaders of the Jewish faith. Telling them they are dying in their sins. Their entire system of religion is causing them to die. Jesus came to give life and more abundantly, but yet they're rejecting him. Verse 25, then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. So we had the Holy Spirit they didn't get. They got the Father they don't get. Then Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. What did he just tell them? You're going to lift me up. You'll know then. How are they going to know? He's coming back. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things to please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Because there's a crowd around him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed, believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered, But well, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will, you will be made free? See, they don't get it. They've never been in slavery. Yeah, they're underneath Roman rule, but the Romans gave them free will to do and do it however they wanted to do within the confines of the law. But they've never known bondage. They weren't in slavery. What's he talking about? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most surely I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendant, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What was the works of Abraham? He believed in them, and he, he believed God, and he followed him. He was accounted to him righteousness. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we were not born in fornication. We have one father. That is God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come to myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. 
which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe in me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. And the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are Samaritan and have a demon? You see, he's getting after them. They're trying everything they can. He said, you're of your father the devil. Because they think that they are right with God. They've got a form of godliness. But the power is standing right in front of them. And they are denying it. And he's saying, you can't deny it when you lift me up. There will be no more denying it. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? Coming against our system, claiming that the father of our faith and the things that we've always done is wrong. And you're saying that we're of our father, the devil. You're of your father, the devil. You're the one that has a demon because there is no man greater than Abraham. There was no man greater than Moses and the rest of the prophets. And you claim that? And Jesus said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say he is your God. They claim he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I'll be a liar just like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old yet. How have you seen Abraham? And most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to throw him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, so passed by. Why was that so bold? What did God say to Moses in the bush? Tell him, I am sent you. There's only one I am. That is God. The creator of all things. The giver of life. The one that they are rejecting. You see, their system and their beliefs and all the things they're doing is keeping them from recognizing the Messiah who's standing right in front of them that Abraham talked about and longed for. And that Moses wrote about. And all the prophets sought is standing in front of them. And yet they reject him. They cannot see through their system. They, they, they refuse to. Was it a lack of proof? Was it a lack of knowledge? It was not a lack of anything. It was a refusal. They chose not to see. You know, it talks about in Peter how that they're willfully ignorant of the things of God. That means they're dumb on purpose. They are choosing this rather than choosing life. Now look in verse 9, because it's going to get worse for them. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Remember one of the things that, one of the Messianic miracles? Because only the Messiah could heal somebody born with a birth defect. In this case, they were blind because they believed that that was because of sin. And that was in the family line. Now watch this. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Fair question based off of their worldview, right? Jesus answered, neither. It wasn't his, this man, it wasn't his parents who sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Why is that? Because this is one of the miracles. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to them, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sin. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So here we've got kind of a weird thing. 
Could Jesus have laid his hands on him? Yeah, he could have. Said he hacked a loogie in the ground, made some mud, stick it on the dude's face. I'll just tell you this much, that if this is the method you're going to use when you're praying for the sick, you better get it right. You can do whatever you want, they come back healed. Otherwise, you just spit on them. So, verse, let's read verse 7. Go and wash again. He, washed, he went and washed, and he came back, seeing therefore the neighbors, and those who previously had seen that he was blind, said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Why did he beg? He had no way to support himself. It's the only thing he could do. Some said, This is he. Others said, Well, it's somebody like him. And he said, No, 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 no. It's me. Therefore, they said, Well, how are your eyes open? And he said, A man called Jesus. Did he know who Jesus was? Doesn't appear to. A man called Jesus, he made clay and anointed, which means he just covered up my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received sight. I mean, what did he have to lose? He's got mud on his face. He's got to get it off there somehow. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, why did he do that? Because here's a miracle that only the Messiah could do that just happened. So they had to take him to the Pharisees because the Pharisees have to investigate because they are the one that is going to declare who the Messiah is. Now it was a Sabbath, uh uh-oh, when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again, how had he received sight? And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed. And now I see. Pretty simple, right? Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Now, this is the problem. It's the Sabbath. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. We were joking this morning, but if you ever go to Jerusalem on the Sabbath, there's no work. And if you get on an elevator that is set up for the Jews, it stops on every floor because pushing the button is work. You can't push the button. Remember, Jesus' people, his disciples got in trouble because they were eating grain. They were pulling the heads off. And what Jesus is going to get at is the heart of, of the commandment, not the letter. You see, what happened during the time of Ezra, when they were going back and rebuilding Jerusalem, they put these things in place called fence laws. And what they were is you had the law of Moses, but the leaders decided, we don't want to get anywhere near breaking these again because, you know, we've just been in captivity in Babylon, wasn't so great, now we're getting things back. So let's put a fence over here where we can't get anywhere close to those, and that way we don't break them again. So therefore, we can't even heal a man on the Sabbath. And they're saying he broke this in. So did he break the command of God? No. He broke the command of the religious system. Verse 17, they said to the blind men again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes and he said, well, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received sight. So they're checking his out. Like, this dude's making it up. This doesn't happen. And they asked him saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and he said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He's of age. Ask him, for he will speak for himself. Why are you asking us? Ask him. We don't know how it happened. We're surprised it's all of you. But why did they respond this way? Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, they would put them out of the synagogue. So, before the miracles took place, they had already decided, we're not going to allow this guy to be the Messiah. And if anybody confesses Jesus, then they're out. They're dead to us. We're pushing them off. And these people feared that. This was a big deal, guys, to them. Because the synagogue is where everything happened. It was a place of worship. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
So they again called the man who was blind and said, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, and now I see. It's all I know. Then he said to him, what did, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this next part. Do you want to become his disciples? He's laying it out there pretty good. You can tell he's Jewish, can't you? All right. Then they uh, reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses as for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to him, Why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now think about this. You've got the average guy, right, who's living his life, has an encounter with Christ. A, a supernatural thing, a messianic miracle, standing before the religious system and leaders of the day saying, you are saying that this isn't from God when we know, how does he know, from the word that only somebody from God can do this because God does not hear the words of sinners. He only hears from those who are his. And they answered him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They refused to listen. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, Who is he? I want to believe in him. And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and as he was talking to you, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come in the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you see. Say, we see, therefore your sin remains. You see, this man came back and he worshipped Jesus as the Messiah. These guys had every opportunity. All the proof was in front of them, and yet they still refused to believe. It wasn't that the evidence wasn't there. It was all around them. Everything that could possibly be done has been done. They see this. They're rejecting him. They will not even give it an opportunity. And they're trying to deal with it in ways like, like no, 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 you're a sinner. No, 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 you weren't really born this way. What do they try to do with Lazarus after Lazarus was raised from the dead in front of all these witnesses? They paid people to try to kill him. What happened when Jesus was resurrected? They tried to pay the guards off. Tell them you fell asleep and the disciples stole his body. In other words, no matter what they did, they were not going to let the nation of Israel Worship this guy as the Messiah. He was going against everything that was set up from, from years prior. They absolutely refused to worship him and allow the nation to see him as the Messiah. Because our system of belief and practice means more to us than the truth of the presence of God in our midst. That was the end of chapter 9. Let's go to verse, chapter 10 again. Most assuredly, I say to you, to whom? The Pharisees. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice, yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. For they do not know the, know the voice of stranger. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. And Jesus said again, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out, go in and out and find pasture. But the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Who is he talking to? The Pharisees. The thief was the Pharisees, the propagators of a system of worship that did not recognize the coming of the Messiah. You see, these people had a form of godliness, but they denied His power. Their power was in front of them. When we talk about whatever happened to the power of God, this is part of the problem we have today. You see, the power of God is still alive and well because He's the same yesterday and today and forever. When He says that believers lay hands on the sick and they will recover, that's with an expectation that that happens. We still believe that people get born again today, but we can't believe anything else than miracles. We're talking about the signs, gifts, ending the vocal gifts, ending the, the knowledge gifts, ending and all of this stuff because we can't allow this to happen because if it does, it wrecks our worldview. It's a system of control set back for really a couple of thousand years now that have rejected the very words of Christ because our system means more to us. We're in a very religious time right now in the United States with, with what's going on. But do we just simply have a form of godliness? Or do we want to be godly? Do we want to live and experience the power of God each and every day of our life? You see, when Jesus got done with the disciples and He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He's with them for 40 days and He says, Listen, this is what I need you to do. Before you go and do anything else, I don't want you to go to all the world and preach the gospel yet. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to stay in Jerusalem. And I want you to hang out there. Because I'm not asking you to do something under your own ability and your own power. But the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And when He does, you will have the power to be my disciples. And then you go out and preach the gospel. And then you lay hands on the sick. And then you can prophesy and speak in tongues and all these other things that are talked about in Scripture. Because he says, I don't want you to have a form of godliness. I want you to be godly. That the only way that they can deny the power of God is that they willfully choose to. And that's what they did. And we watched that happen in Acts chapter 2. You see, part of our problem today about where the power of God is, is we've got a religious system that has infiltrated the world. That Yeah, they got a form of godliness. they got a form of do's and don'ts. Do you realize that Jesus himself is not qualified based off the standards they set out to pastor most churches in this country? If there was a hiring process and Jesus sent in his resume, it would get rejected. How sad is that? Because we're too caught up in our systems. We're too caught up in our lenses and our teams and our groups and our denominations and all of that. We are the body of Christ. Jesus never said, listen, this is what I want you to do, guys. I want you to go to the South. And I want you to set up the Baptist group. Because, man, like, them South, they're going to like the Baptists. You just trust me on that one. And you all go to the North, and you set up some, some Methodist or some Lutheran, and, and we'll go over here, and we'll go to the West, and we'll get a little Episcopalian going on, and Presbyterian and all. I mean, that never happened. Jesus said that my church is my body. It is my bride, and I am coming back for it. And the problem we're going to have, guys, is that they're going to say, Lord, Lord, in your name I, I cast out demons, and I prophesied, and I did this stuff, and I did it in your name. And he's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. 
Yeah, you had a form of godliness, but you denied the power. You see, the power of God is the only thing that can change a person's life. We might be able to modify behaviors for a time, but we will never truly be changed without the power of God. It is only the power of God. And just like the Pharisees today, we have a system set up in place that will deny everything supernatural. And we try to whitewash it away because it might have got a little weird and people get a little crazy or something happened and it doesn't fit our system, so we have to deny it. I had somebody who told me, uh, this is maybe a year ago or so, that they do not believe that God still heals today, that miracles still happen at all. And I, I, my question to them was, well, what if we brought somebody that was healed? verifiably healed not just because they said so but verifiably they were they had an issue and now they don't have the issue would that prove that God heals today his response was no because scripture tells us that God doesn't heal today this is a pastor down in Kansas and all I could think about was this right here the thief comes to steal kill and destroy he steals eternal life from those who follow him. It's an attitude of the heart. We have a form of godliness, but we deny his power. Now look at the end of chapter uh, 3 of uh, 2 Timothy in verse 10. It says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manners of life and my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance. You've, you've followed my persecutions and my afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch at Iconium. At Lystra, what persecution I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. This is Paul talking to Timothy. What do we call what he just said? Discipleship. We don't make disciples anymore. We hope they show up. He said, Timothy, you followed my doctrine and, and the way I do life and, and my purpose. And you followed my faith and, and the long-suffering and everything else. The, all, all the persecutions. You were there with me. You saw it all. And you watched God deliver me from all of them. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they're going to suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Because all scriptures are given by the inspiration of God and they are profitable. They're for doctrine and, and for reproof and for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and that he is a thoroughly equipped for every good work. A form of godliness but deny its power. You see, we do not have disciples being made today. Whose responsibility is it to make disciples? Look around the room. But we put, it on a, we put it on a church, we put it on the pastor, we said, okay, well, you go in there and you do this and all of that, and I'll just show up and I'll do my thing, I'll give some money, and then, then you got some more money to work with and we can reach more people. It has never been my job, the church's job, uh, as the structure at all, to reach the lost. That was the individual, the body of Christ, that is our job, that we are disciples, so that when they, they see that our doctrine, that we, we pour into them, and that the way we live our life, our manner of life, and, and the purpose of which we do it, and the faith that we have, and the long suffering when things get hard. And things aren't going our way. And that the love we have for people and the perseverance in the faith, no matter what happens, and when persecutions and afflictions arise, I will not be brought down. You will watch me stand up no matter what is said. I will live my life for Christ. You will watch them and you will watch that out of every one of them. You'll watch the Lord deliver me. That is discipleship. 
We don't have that anymore because it takes effort and it takes time and we don't want to mess with that. We're too busy doing things and we're missing God. We're looking for the spectacular and missing the supernatural. When Jesus said that it is my will that all be born again, I loved everybody. But those who believe in me will be born again. He really meant it. When he told the disciples to go into all the world, he really meant it. When he told them to lay hands on the sick and watch them recover, he really meant it. He never changed. He never wavered. And Timothy knew this because he watched Paul. He watched Paul go through all of this stuff. And he's watching people who claim to be godly. But yet their life doesn't reflect it. And they do a lot of good things and a lot of right things in the eyes of the Pharisees and the eyes of the system. But yet, they're denying the very power of God. But Timothy, from childhood, he knew about him because he knew the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. And that time would have been the Old Testament. But if you can know about salvation through faith in Christ through the Old Testament, imagine what the stories in the New Testament will do for you. Because all Scripture was given by the inspiration of God. It was God-breathed and it was profitable for doctrine and what we believe and for reproof and correction and getting things right and instruction on being righteous that the man of God may be complete. Not partially complete, not a little bit missing, that he is complete and he's equipped for every good work. You notice that it says it doesn't mean that you're instructed in righteousness by your good works so that you can be equipped. It's that because of your righteousness that you are equipped for every good work. Whatever happened to the power of God, we've traded it in for a system of worship, a system of beliefs. We've lost the heart of God. You want to see the power of God? I'm telling you right now, you better get ready. You see, God is doing something, and He is moving today like He's always done. But when we get away from the things that we should be doing, from the things that we want to be doing, we lose the heart. I don't know about you. I don't want to have a form of godliness. I want people to see God in me every single day, everything I do. This is just the beginning, guys. I'm telling you, get ready. Because the power of God is moving in this place. Amen?